Thank you, Brad and choir, for that beautiful music. <clears throat> Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the New Testament book of Matthew, so I encourage you to please turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, where I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. And if you don't have a Bible, I invite you to please grab that red Bible in front of you in the pew and follow along as I read again Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denaria for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denaria. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denaria. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have been born and burden, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of all day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denaria? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. <clears throat> Sorry, I can say that when I get up here, I suppose. I'll tell you what, if in a general way having kids is one of the things that I've f- 
figured out is most humbling in life because you end up being sleep-deprived and recognizing how selfish you are and how helpless you are, <laughs> um, then letting them be super, super exhausted from a couple days traveling and then meet an entire church is definitely doubly humbling. <laughs> <laughs> it is so good to be with all of you. It was wonderful. We really are grateful for all of your understanding and help with them and with your hospitality. Um, I know Elizabeth has um, felt very blessed, and so have I, to meet and um, just be welcomed by you here and by the search committee throughout this process. It's just, it's good to see you all and to see a lot of familiar faces, too. It was great to meet a lot of you yesterday. But with that said, let's turn our attention to God's Word and spend some time thinking about this parable that we just heard read. Um, As Pat said, and as you probably noticed, I have three kids. Um, Rebecca is five, and Canaan is three. And Silas is just under a year old. And one of my favorite things as a father is in between all of the crying and the fighting and the the fits and things, those those rare, beautiful moments when your kids are just quietly playing with each other or with themselves. Um, And and you just get to, to watch. They don't even know that you're there. And it's fascinating to sit and listen to them as they talk to themselves and they narrate these little games and things that are happening. They tell these incredible stories. One of the things that you realize as you listen to those stories is how much they end up being these kind of delightful and fascinating fusions of their own lives and the stories that they've heard told to them or had read to them. And so they take the plot of some book we've been reading, and they weave themselves into it. So Rebecca is going to meet Aslan at the kitchen table, or Kanan and Captain America have to go fight the bad guys to get the cookies that they're not allowed to have. Those are both actual stories that I've heard them tell. (laughs) And interestingly, if you read people that study children and how children develop, um, that's not just a silly little game. They tell you that those stories And the way that they adapt them and they weave them in with their own lives are actually an important part of how kids figure out how to think about the world. That they give them what they call a a narrative framework for their lives so that they can understand the events and people that they encounter. Even if that framework also happens to include superheroes and princesses. And it's not just children. I think that we all do this as well, right? I mean... Some people verbalize it more than others, but don't we all have that favorite set of stories that we tell to help explain our lives, stories about childhood happiness or hurt, stories about um, teenage misadventures, about, you know, how we met someone that we love, about the birth of our children. I love those stories. I love to hear people tell them. I love to share our own. And if you listen to them closely, you start to realize that those are also kind of those formative stories. I mean, yes, if I tell you about how Elizabeth and I started dating, Iron Man doesn't make an appearance. But the things that I share, the way I tell that story, the details that I give and that I leave out, they're all there because what I'm trying to tell is this sort of greater narrative that fits into my life, right? There's this narrative framework to the way that I think about my stories, too. And so I think it's little wonder that Jesus is so fond of stories. He tells them all the time in the Gospels. We call them parables, these little vignettes about daily life with characters and a plot and conflict and resolution. And the reason that Jesus tells these parables is because he takes these familiar stories and he gives them a twist 
They play out in a way other than what we're expecting. And so it's beggars that are welcomed into the wedding feast. It's the Samaritan instead of the priest that stops and helps the battered man. And Jesus is telling these stories so that they can meet us and then challenge the stories that we naturally tell about our lives. Now I'll tell you what, I think we need this kind of challenge and shaping and meeting of our stories. I need it. Because as much as I try to tell the story of my life in this certain way that I've learned, where I'm the hero and I'll triumph because of my cleverness and hard work and ultimately succeed over every obstacle, as much as I try to tell that story, I know that it isn't really true. I know that the stories that I try to tell myself aren't enough. They can't satisfy the deep longings I feel, deep longings for meaning and significance and purpose in the world. What I need is another set of stories, and Jesus comes to provide them. So here's the question I want us to ask this morning as we look at this story that Jesus tells about these laborers in the vineyard. I want us to ask what this story in our text teaches us about how we tell our stories. What is our place in this story? So let's start working through the parable to try to see that. I don't have a simple three points. I just want us to walk through the story. So let's start at the beginning, okay? The beginning of our parable, Jesus starts in what would be for his listeners a familiar place. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this master, this landowner, who goes out to hire laborers for his vineyard. So one of the main characters in our story, who's obviously meant to stand in for God, if you didn't pick that up as we read through it this morning, this main character that kind of stands in for God is this wealthy man, a man who has land and fields that are growing grapes that are eventually going to be pressed into wine, and it's harvest time, and the vines are heavy with these big juicy clusters of grapes, and they need to be picked. And this is a familiar scene to everyone hearing Jesus' story. Their world was centered on agriculture and farming. It's a world before all the modern tools that we have for this farming. They didn't have tractors or trucks or, I don't know what you use for grapes, picking machines or something. All that you had was the work of your hands and the sweat of your brow. And so what the landowner needs is people to send out and work in the vineyard. And so where where are you going to find them? Well, he'd probably start, right, with his own household, His children and his servants, they would probably help out. But apparently, that's not nearly enough. And so he goes out into the city square to find people to work the vineyard. And that is where you and I enter the story. If the landowner is supposed to be God, then it's clear that the people listening to Jesus are meant to see themselves as these workers standing around the city square. And we can miss this when we hear the story told today, but that is not an exalted position to have. These people were standing around because basically they were unemployed. They were the lowest rung of the kind of social ladder of Jesus' world. There were people who owned land, and they're not them. And then there were people who were full-time workers for those people who owned land, and they're not them either. They would wake up in the morning and straggle into this meeting area just hoping that someone would have work for them. In terms of our world, they're, they're somewhere between people working for a temp agency and, and those migrant laborers that come up to pick fruit still today in the southern United States. And so, and so you've got to realize a few things about these people that Jesus is comparing us to. First, 
These are poor people. They agree to work for a denarius a day, which according to commentators is the normal kind of wage you would be paid for a day's work. It would be enough to take care of the day's bills and buy some food for a day or two for your family. And remember, these people need that money in order to get that. They need that wage in order to have food for that day. And you have to wonder when you think about their condition, how many days had they shown up to the city square and there had been no work for them? How many days had they waited all day hoping to be hired only to return home with empty pockets and empty stomachs? These people were poor, and because of this they were also helpless. If they were going to find work, someone had to hire them. That's apparent as we see the landowner returning to the square over and over throughout the day, right? We might imagine that people just keep showing up there, but if you look in verse 6, he talks to the people that, have, that he's hiring at the very end of the day, and he asks them why they've been standing around all day. So apparently at 6 in the morning when he went out, they were already there waiting, hoping for work, and nobody hired them. They were helpless. There's no work to be had. And the master seems to know this. It's almost written like that's why he keeps hiring people, which we're going to come back to in a minute. But, but what happens overall is pretty simple, right? He comes out at 6 in the morning, and he sees all these people, and he hires some to come work in his field. And then he goes back into the square at 9 in the morning and hires some more people, and then at noon, and then at 3, and then finally at 5 p.m., an hour before the day's work is done, every time he's hiring more people and sending them into the vineyard. Now, we, we know the big twist is coming because we heard the story, and we'll get to that in a minute. But even before we see what the landowner does, this is already, I think, starting to teach us about how we tell the stories of our own lives. See, in the stories that we tell, and the stories that I tell, that I have in the back of my head and imagine myself in, I tend to be the hero. I mean, maybe it's not obvious. Maybe it's more one of those stories where I'm like the accountant who secretly has powers and is fighting evil, right? Maybe it's not obvious that I'm the hero. But in the end, I think we all believe that the problem with our lives is that we are supposed to be the heroes, the big central characters, and that the key to our happiness is somehow convincing ourselves that we are. I mean, there's a reason that these, like, like these young adult novel series, right? That they, you see all the books and the movies that get hugely popular. There's a reason that in all of them, they're about an awkward, misunderstood loner who discovers that secretly he's supposed to save the universe. The reason is because we all feel awkward and misunderstood and lonely, but, but we desperately want to discover that we're actually the boy who lived, or the son of a Greek god, or the mockingjay, or whatever kind of character in those books you, you find yourself gravitating to. But that is not how Jesus tells the story. In his version of it, we are the guy standing by the Walmart parking lot with the will work for food sign. That's us. Jesus is reminding his hearers and us of our lowly place, of our lowly place. And look, that had to be a challenging idea for Jesus' original hearers. He's speaking to a crowd that includes these Pharisees and other important people. 
He's speaking to his disciples who regularly want to know how big the thrones that they're going to get in the kingdom of heaven are. He's speaking to these people obsessed with their own importance, and he's telling them that they're not. And I realize that's probably, on the face of it, not the most exciting thing to hear, right? I mean, nobody wins popularity contests by telling people that they aren't special snowflakes, We don't like that, and I don't like it. I want to think about the story of my life in a way that makes me seem like one of the biggest and most important people in the world. But here's the thing. I'm not. I'm not. The problem with those young adult novels that I referenced is that while I am awkward and misunderstood and lonely, I am not Harry Potter or or Divergent or whatever. I'm an ordinary person born to ordinary parents who will almost certainly live an ordinary life. And I can try to pretend like I'm secretly somehow important, more important than that. I know deep down that it isn't true. But there's something actually freeing, I think, about the way that Jesus paints us in this story, too. It's freeing because it means that I don't have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. Jesus is saying that everyone is like these day laborers, desperate for work, and that that's okay. It's not a betrayal of some deeper meaning or purpose I'm supposed to have, that that is, in fact, what apparently I'm created to be. This is freeing, because even as Jesus paints us in this unflattering light, he also gives us a couple of hints about where that meaning and significance that we long for comes from. A couple of hints. And, and one of those hints I want to save for a minute, okay, probably the biggest one. But the other one I think we already start to see in our story. That's that Jesus is reminding the people listening that their significance doesn't lie in their kind of lofty estate in God's story, but it lies in the fact that God has given them work to do. God's given them work to do. That the important part of the story is not who these people standing around are. The important part is that the landowner is welcoming them into his vineyard and calling them to work in it. I mean, there are times that I feel like, like there are two kinds of people, but, but not that because anyone who actually believes that doesn't really get the complexity of human beings. But maybe there's two, there's two extremes that I feel like people can kind of gravitate towards. And on the one side, there are people who are kind of obsessed with figuring out what the meaning and purpose of their lives are and what they're doing here. And so they spend all this time kind of gazing inward and trying to understand what they're here for. And left to myself, that is me. I am that kind of person. <laughs> And that's not all bad. There's, there's times that some introspection and reflection can be really helpful. Um, but the problem is that living like that doesn't get you anywhere. That it's this life that you live just focused on yourself. And it leaves you feeling small and unhappy because you're afraid that maybe that's what you are. But the happiest and fullest people that I know, they aren't like that. They're instead focused not on themselves, but on others and on the, their, their calling that God has given them to love and serve others. They're living life serving and loving and caring for the people around them. They're the old saints with calloused palms from doing the Lord's work. And the thing about those people, as I've talked to them, is that they just don't spend a lot of time thinking about what they're here for. Instead, they try to live as servants doing God's work, trying to be about the business of God And I think those people are happier 
because they've stumbled onto a significant reality about the world that we live in, that you are not important enough to be the center of the story. None of us are. I'm not important enough. If I try to make the world about me and my meaning and my purpose, then I'm ultimately going to have to confront the fact that I'm too small to bear that weight. But God is important enough. He can bear the weight of the world. And he has given us a purpose, a role to play in his story. Not to be the hero, but to be a servant. To serve him by serving the world he has made, by working in it and loving in it and living in it for his glory. And when you take your life and make it about that purpose, I think you actually start to matter less and less to yourself and that that actually somehow starts to set you free. So Jesus is reminding us of our lowly place, even at the beginning of the story, and offering us hope because although we have a lowly place, we've been given significant work to do That's part of the story, part of what he wants to see in our lives. But it's only part of it. There's another, maybe more important thing that he also wants to teach us. See, Jesus, as he tells this parable, he starts to kind of tell us about ourselves. But more than that, what this parable is meant to do is tell us about God. So let's pick the story back up, okay, where we left off. First, going back a little bit, we already noted this. But the master of the vineyard keeps returning to the square and hiring more men, right? Why do you think he's doing this? Well, I'll tell you, it almost certainly isn't because it's a savvy business move. All right, we know where the story's going. He's going to hire these guys at 5 o'clock, and at 6 o'clock they're going to get paid, and they're going to get paid a full day's wages, and that is not going to turn a profit for him. They probably haven't even worked up a sweat yet. It's, It's not like the ancient world was different from ours. This is not sort of good business sense. Rather, probably... The reason that the master is doing this is because he has compassion on the people. He sees, like we said, their helpless position. He knows their families are going to go hungry tonight if they can't find work. And so he comes and provides a way for them. He's being merciful and loving as he keeps hiring these people. And of course, that becomes even more clear when we see what happens next, right? The big twist of the story, the big reveal. The master calls in all the people who have worked in the vineyard, which would be the normal thing you'd do, and he brings in the ones that he hired at 5 o'clock first, and they walk in, and he shakes their hands, and he gives each of them a denarius, a full day's wages, which, again, to be clear, they did not earn. That makes as little sense then as it does now. Why is the landowner doing this? It's because what he's trying to model is gracious provision towards these men. Gracious provision. Like we said, a denarius a day is what you needed to keep your family fed and the bills paid. And the landowner knows these men are desperate and needy and he supplies them with what they need. Even though they haven't earned it. And even though it would cost him dearly. I mean, he had basically gotten nothing from them, but he pays them a full day's wages. And look... That is not a command about how businesses are supposed to be run in our world, okay? You don't have to hear it that way. We, we are called to show mercy and kindness as we, you know, in, engage in business in this world. But he, Jesus isn't saying that this is how you have to run a business. It's not a parable about the economy of the world, but it's a parable about the economy of God's kingdom. The economy of God's kingdom. An economy that is not about earning things from God 
but about God graciously providing them to us. That is how the kingdom of heaven works. I mean, here's something that's easy to miss about the story. What would happen to these people, whether they were hired at 5 p.m. or 6 a.m., what would happen if the landowner hadn't chosen to come hire them? If he doesn't give them work and pay them a day's wages, none of them are going to get anything. They're still going to be standing around at that square when the sun sets. Their stomach's rumbling. The only reason any of them get anything is because he comes and draws them in. And the only reason that the 6 a.m. workers are there at 6 instead of at 5 p.m. is because they were the ones that he happens to hire early in the morning. And that, friends, is a way of expressing what happens in the gospel. That left to ourselves, we have nothing. We have nothing. But God comes and he draws us to himself. He comes and he dies for us. He comes and he stirs our hearts and awakens us so that we can come to him. Our motion towards God, our work in his vineyard is all a response to this call. God draws us to himself and then God graciously provides for us. He gives us himself. He gives us new life as his children. He gives us an inheritance on the new heavens and new earth. Some of us might labor all our lives for him. Others might squeak through by the skin of our teeth. But he provides freely for all of us. And not just your day's wages, right, but more richly than we can imagine. It's mercy all from the moment of his call to the end of our labors when he gives us more than we could ever ask or dream. And this helps us make sense of this story. Sure, part of what God has called us to is this work that he has for us. That is a significant and a good thing. But you are mistaken if you think that that work is enough to satisfy you. Well, we said that people who live for others are happier than people who live for themselves. Even a life full of service to others cannot satisfy the longing you feel in your soul for significance and meaning. Because no matter how much you work and labor, you can never fill yourself. Ultimately, our longing for significance is a longing to find a loving communion big enough to fill the hole we feel in our hearts. And you can't fill that with love for yourself by telling your own story because you're just like an empty pitcher trying to pour something into itself. It just doesn't work. But you can't fill that just by kind of doing stuff for others either because all of those other people in themselves are empty pitchers too. And it doesn't matter whether you pour one or a hundred of them into you. You're still just as empty. The only love big enough to satisfy our longing hearts is the love of God. It is a great river of love at which every pitcher can be filled. And the key to understanding Christianity is understanding that this love is not something you can earn or engineer for yourself. It is something that he freely gives, that he graciously provides. To find fullness and meaning is ultimately to find yourself in Christ, resting in him. To cast yourself on him, to acknowledge that you can't gain anything without him. And the beautiful promise of Christianity is that if you do that, that he is there and the river of his love is eager to flow over you. That somehow he has already been calling and drawing you to himself. So we see these lowly, needy people coming to work in the landlord's vineyard. 
And we see the master's gracious provision for those working there. And we could leave it there, I suppose, because that already is helping us understand how our story needs to be shaped by moving into God's. <clears throat> but, but that's not the point still of what Jesus is saying. He's trying to provoke and challenge us in another way still, and that lies in what comes at the end of the story. So the master has called in the workers who only worked for an hour, and he's paid them a full day's wages. And then he calls in those who had worked for three hours, and he pays them the same. And then who worked, those who worked for six and paid them the same. And you need to get the picture right in your head, all right? So all of the workers that were hired all throughout the day are standing outside of this house where the master and his steward, like his, his accountant, are. And, um, and so you've got the guys who are fresh and you know, not even like sweaty and their clothes are still clean. And then you've got the guys who worked all day, who are leaning against the walls, and they're covered in dirt and, and grape juice, I guess, I assume. Um, and, and the ones who are clean and fresh, they go in and they come out and they're like, guys, the master gave us a whole denarius. And you know what the people who have been there all day are thinking, right? They watch all these other people come out. And finally, after all these other groups have come, the ones who started working at 6 a.m. go in and the master thanks them for their hard work and shakes their hand and gives each of them a denarius too. And I guess unsurprisingly, they're not happy about that. And look, we get that, right? I mean, I would be ticked off if I were one of these men. They say to the landowner, right, hey now, hold on a minute. Those guys out there, they worked for one hour, but you paid them the same as us? Even though we carried the weight of the whole day and the scorching sun? Of course, by this time, it should be apparent to us. And to Jesus' listeners, that he's definitely not talking about the economics of agriculture. They get what he's saying. See, just before this parable in Matthew, Jesus meets this rich young ruler. It's this familiar story. So here's a guy who is, who is important and um, who has been successful in his life. And he comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be saved? And first Jesus says, well, I mean, you know the commands of Moses, right? You're supposed to follow them. And the guy says, I've done that. And Jesus doesn't even disagree with him. Certainly he hasn't truly done that, but Jesus sort of agrees. So apparently this guy is rich and successful, and he's extremely religiously pious. He is a a good guy by any worldly standard. Instead, Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what you specifically need to do? You need to give all of your money to the poor. And the guy walks away sadly Because he knows that this is the thing that in himself he cannot do. And Peter starts feeling nervous then. So he asks Jesus, he says, Lord, how can anyone be saved? And then he's even more nervous and he says, what about us who've been following you our whole lives? What about us? What do we get out of it? And it is in light of that question that Jesus proceeds to tell this story. So the crowds have gotten what Jesus is saying. He's saying there are people who are hardworking and blessed and good people who never break the rules and never disobey God and labor for him their whole lives and are respectable and holy. And God treats them just like the prostitutes and sinners that follow in Jesus' wake. The rich young ruler and the poor young prodigal are apparently... In God's economy, the same. And the people hearing this resent that. 
They don't like this idea. At least the ones who have been the hard workers, they don't like that idea, right? They say, look, we have followed God our whole lives and sacrificed for him and worked for him. How can he treat us like these sinners? And that is a question that I think all of us at different points in our lives can struggle with. Especially those of us in the church. Especially those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time. I mean, don't you, in the dark places in your heart, struggle with that sometimes, even if you won't admit it? Don't you feel better than others, more worthy of Christ than others because of your hard work and obedience? I do. And that feeling, I suppose, is understandable and normal, but according to Jesus, it is also wrong. Look at the landowner's response. What he does is systematically destroy this feeling of superiority for us. First, he says, friend, I'm not doing you any wrong. I'm not doing you any wrong. I'm paying you what I said I would. Those of us who might have worked hard for Jesus, we are getting all of the blessings that he promises. We are getting communion with the Father and new creation and eternal life and all of that. We aren't getting cheated out of anything. We don't resent the fact that God is taking something away from us. What we resent in those dark moments is that God is giving it to other people too. As the landowner asks, do you begrudge my generosity? And the answer for these workers and for us, I I know, can be yes, we do. We get angry not because God is unkind to us, but because he's also gracious to others. And then he says something else. The landowner says, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? And this isn't just meant to be a contractual question. Instead, he's trying to call these people's minds back to that point early in the morning when he had hired them. He's trying to remind them of their situation. These men who are angry, they were actually in exactly the same position as the other workers. They were just as unemployed and in need of a job at the start of the day. They were just as much recipients of the landowner's provision. They were just lucky to have been called first. And this should remind us of the folly of our bitterness, too. We as Christians can so easily slip into this economy of works in our faith. We can so easily act like what we're doing are favors for God, like he owes us something like we have earned some special place in his kingdom because he called us first. And what he wants to remind us is that, in fact, we are exactly like those other people. That we were all far off until God called us and drew us to himself. That we are all sinners desperately in need of grace. We don't get to divide the world between the more righteous like us and the less righteous like those other people. That the only division in the world is between sinners and the Savior. And the landowner still isn't done. He has one more question for them and us. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Which is to say, who is the master here? You or me? See, what these, what these workers are doing within this setting is actually this huge kind of social, shameful thing, this kind of rebuke of the landowner, because they're pretending like 
like what the landowner owns, they have some right to, that they should be the ones that tell him how to manage his property, that they should be the ones that tell him what to do with his money. They are acting like his generosity is something they can claim, like his resources are something that they get to decide an appropriate way to distribute. They are putting themselves in the place of the landowner, which in this story is the place of God. And that ultimately is what this story challenges about our stories. What's wrong with telling your story as if you're supposed to be the hero? It isn't just that you aren't heroic enough to play the part, like we said. It is that the universe has a hero that is meant to be at the center of the story, and that it isn't us. It's God. So if we are to find a story big enough to give meaning to our lives, we have to first repent of our sinful pride. We have to repent of our sinful pride. I mean, this, in the end, is what pride is. It is taking God's place in this story and claiming it as ours. It was, it was the serpent's promise in the Garden of Eden, right? If you eat of this fruit, then you will be like God. Pride is the reason we rebel against our lowly place in the story of the gospel. We don't want to be workers standing around in the square. We want to be the guys who run the vineyard. It's the reason that we struggle to accept the good news of God's grace. Because we want to be the guys who earned it, who deserve it, who pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps to get it. If we are to become a part of God's story, we have to repent and acknowledge that it is God's story and not just mine. At the same time, while we have to repent of our selfish pride, we can also rejoice because God's story is one that can give meaning and significance to our lives. It is a big enough story. I mean, think about this. In the story scripture tells, there actually is a great hero coming to save the world. It's God. And he calls us, and then he gives us a role to play in serving him as redemption goes out into that world. No, we aren't the savior in this story, but that's okay. I mean, like we said, any any tale where I'm supposed to save the world is going to be a tragedy or a dark comedy. But, But God is the great savior. And I and each of us can find meaning and significance and purpose for our lives as serving as agents and ambassadors of his salvation. The last verse of our text sums up the point of the story. Jesus says it this way. He says, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's a familiar saying to us, but it is also exactly the choice that this parable confronts us with. In life, it tells us, you got two options. The first is to try to be the first in the story. It's to try to tell it your way. A story where you're the hero and the savior. And you can do that, but it's never going to get you where you want to go. We are all creatures too small and too weak and too sinful to be at the center of the story. And as much as you try to convince yourself it isn't so, as much as I try to convince myself it isn't so, deep down we all know that that's true. The good news is that there's another story 
In this story, there is a great dragon that needs to be slain. There is a universe that needs to be saved. There's evil that needs to be battled and good that is there to fight it. And in that story, God is the hero, not you. But if you humble yourself, if you take that position of last in it, he invites you to join him. He invites you into his story to make it your own. And in the end, that is the story that Jesus offers that we can weave into our lives. The story of God's great salvation in the world and our role of serving him in it. The greatest story you could imagine. Let's make it ours. Let's pray. Father God, I confess to you as much as I like to think otherwise that I am a sinner that all of us, Lord, are sinners in need of grace, and that each of us has claimed a grace only because you have called and worked and drawn us to yourself and died for us. I pray, God, that we might find peace and hope and joy in that story, that we might make it ours, that we might rejoice in our calling as recipients of grace and servants of your kingdom. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the song of praise. <clears throat> Take my feet and let them be.
not actually sure where you stand for the benediction here, so I'm going to stand right here, if that's okay. It has been such a joy spending time with you all. Um, yeah, it's good. Thank you. We've appreciated it a lot. Um, as you go out from this place, go out with the knowledge that the Lord, who is good and gracious, loves and calls you to himself, that he makes provision for you, that he more richly blesses you than you can imagine. Go out, make his story your own. Live lives of service to that story and go with his blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace both now and forever. Amen.